0: Hello, and welcome to episode nine of Hidden Noise. I'm Rebecca Siegel. And I'm Abby Sandler. And today, we're back to doing things normally.
1: As usual, we'll start off with our go-see, which is Peter Hujar, speed of life at the Morgan Library.
0: Then we'll turn it over to Jason, who will be speaking with painter Amy Silman.
1: And finally, for the even eight, we were lucky enough to be joined by the kitchen's executive director and chief curator, Tim Griffin.
0: But first, some important details on Peter Hujar.
1: Peter Hujar was born in 1934 in Trenton, New Jersey. He was abandoned by his father at birth and sent to be raised by his grandparents in the township of Ewing. At the age of 11, Hujar, his mother and her new husband, moved to Manhattan.
0: Which didn't go super well. At 16, Hujar moved out of the one-bedroom apartment they all shared and moved in with his English teacher.
1: Which sounds much more problematic than it actually was. Daisy
0: Alden was a real mentor to him. She was also gay, so
1: take back or unwind
0: those Dawson's Creek memories.
1: She was also the one who pushed him to pursue photography in a much more serious way. So needless to say, she was a pretty critical figure in Hujar's early life and career.
0: After a variety of deeply menial assistant jobs for various photographers, Hujar went on to take jobs at GQ, Harper's Bazaar, and several other publications.
1: But commissioned work never really interested him, so he gave it up to pursue a more independent career in photography.
0: From then on, Hujar's photography became heavily embedded in the downtown bohemia of New York City in the 60s, 70s, and even early 80s. There's an amazing line by the artist. The end goal was, quote, uncomplicated direct photographs of complicated and difficult subjects and the cast of dancers writers drag performers and musicians you know that famous photograph of Susan Sontag lying down or Warhol's muse candy darling dying in a hospital bed all of those are part of that effort. That being said, some of his subjects were slightly less complicated. Abby, for example, wouldn't stop going on about the portraits of cows and dogs.
1: But apparently, I'm not the only person with an obsessive appreciation of animals. I happened to go to some of the additional programming for the exhibition, which included a talk with Fran Leibowitz, close friend of Fujar. And she told a very funny story about how whenever they would drive to her parents' house in New Jersey, or even like the special print shop that Interview would send her to, Um, which was also in New Jersey. Peter would make her stop and pull over just to like take pictures of whatever cow or animal he saw. And honestly, all I could think was, wow, I can really relate to that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We are never going on a road trip together. Never.
1: Never. Um, Were there any other
0: big takeaways from the talk?
1: There were. The whole thing opened with this beautifully edited montage, I guess I would call it, created to accompany the exhibition. It included just about every photo in the show, I think, along with all the contact sheets that each of the photos in the show came from. So together with the editing and the pace, which it moved, which was pretty fast, it was like seeing little clips from each of these shoots and then each sequence would then end on whatever image was pulled for the show. But it gave every one of these images a life that you really don't get to see in the show, you know, looking at them all extremely out of context. I'm not
0: sure if we've mentioned this yet, but the exhibition is rather small.
1: Yes, 143 photographs, I believe.
0: Which sounds like a lot, but it's a room. It's a single room with a small sort of ante room that has vitrines with contact sheets. And yet it's still perhaps the largest institutional exhibition of Hujar's work in terms of breadth.
1: The comprehensive display presents work created over the entire course of Hujar's career, which is very rare. The curator, Joel Smith, decided to organize the show thematically, grouping together photographs that Hujar wouldn't have necessarily hung together.
0: For example, there's a group that explores a visual consistency across a smattering of subjects. The four images consistently draw the eye from the top left of a square to the bottom right. But one's a leg and one is a mountain and these subjects have nothing to do with one another.
1: And another group will be comprised exclusively of veiled subjects and objects or another of group portraits. Personally, I found this organization very, very effective.
0: Same. I totally dig formalism for Hujar, who is so often actually mired in being a character, much more so than being a photographer.
1: Right. So often displays of his work are centered around his downtown life, the artists, performers, writers that were all very interesting that he surrounded himself with. But this definitely gives a much more expansive look into his career, such as cows and sheep.
0: (laughs) And that breath (laughs) is particularly amazing at the Morgan, which as every New Yorker knows is massively conservative. But they also own almost every photograph in the show. There was a major acquisition in 2013. I think of about 100 photographs from Hujar's archive. I do want to warn everyone, though, for as many copies of Hanya Yanagahara's A Little Life that I have looked at in the past few years, I was very surprised not to see Hujar's iconic image, Orgasmic Man, on display in the show.
1: That's so real. But don't worry, guys. Candy Darling is there on her deathbed.
0: As are some very important activism photos, which really document a moment in time in New York City. That being said, when it comes to finding this show, we recommend asking the information desk. You literally go through at least two unmarked doors to get there.
1: Yeah, and when you find yourself in a hallway that makes you feel like you may or may not be on your way to your professor's office hours,
0: you're in the right place. (laughs) And lastly, on your way out, go pick up a catalog.
1: It's definitely one of the best ones yet. And who wouldn't want a big book of beautiful black-and-white portraits of New York's Bohemia? (laughs) You know, our next artist I think of as a New
0: Yorker. She's based in the city. She has been for years, went to SVA and NYU.
1: But secretly, she was actually born in Detroit. Plot twist. I am going to briefly tell you about Amy Sillman before Jason takes it away. Her early career was characterized by figuration. Graphic, full of social cues, and a bit kinky. She has spent the rest of her career moving between figuration and abstraction, but with a real understanding of composition.
0: So even in paintings that we would call abstract, there are still hints of shapes presented in space, some up front, others to the back. She's also worked with all kinds of materials from acrylic to calligraphy ink, iPad screens, and she makes a personal zine. Her animated drawings, which incorporate elements of cartooning, are actually massively labor-intensive. This isn't some sort of lazy adoption of film because it's an easy sort of computer-animated tech experiment. She's actually sort of hand-drawing Fantasia at all times. So on that note, we will turn it over to Jason Farrago with Amy
2: Silman. Amy Silman, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jason. Um, I was rereading something you wrote a couple years ago as I was preparing for this interview. It was a long and very heartfelt essay you wrote about Abstract Expressionism that was published. I think it was a 2011. It was around the time that Momo was rehanging its exactly. permanent collection for to show off its collection of abstract expressionism and it was this deeply heartfelt and also very funny reckoning with the impact of abstract expressionism and the alleged masculinity of abstract expressionism 60 some odd years on I would love to talk to you a little bit about your own early experiences with abstract painting what kind of early influences You saw an abstract painting and whether they've changed from your youth to today.
3: Oh. Hmm. Well, whether they've changed, that's a, a whole different <laughs> part of the response. But I mean, I had my first drawing teacher was an abstract express you know, like an old abstract expressionist in that trajectory, let's say. I mean, not a not A, a player, but I didn't think I was going to be a painter or an artist. I didn't have a model. I didn't have an idea how you did that. Painting definitely seemed to me like probably how it seems to a lot of people right now where who come into the story in the middle, where it's like oh, this isn't really for you, it's for, you know, big guys and rich people and it's 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 a trophy thing. But I was a kid and I thought, you know, well, maybe I'll be able to be an illustrator or something like that. But I, if you had gone to school in the 70s, the kind of people who are teaching then would be sort of relics from the 50s and 60s because that's who gets a teaching job. So my te- some of my teachers, and definitely my first teacher, was old school, you know, in the gestural painting tradition. And it was absolutely and completely radical and revelatory to take a class where you work in the moment, you work improvisationally to the sound of jazz. Literally, he played jazz, like, as a background to the class, you literally have an experience of a flesh in front of you, you look at nudes, you look at things, you work with your brain and your body, kind of all at once. And I think because my friends at the time were more filmmakers, I was able to make a connection all of a sudden between the tradition of underground filmmaking, which was kind of like walk around the city and shoot and then edit in the editing room later. But like, same with music, you know, a kind of improv
2: Right, Uh, you lay down the track in an improvisational way and then something happens in post-production. Yeah, exactly.
3: But but you also, like, trust. You know, you trust your body. You trust your gut reaction. You trust your non-cerebral cortex. You know, it's not about like research and analysis, and it's a form that I saw, I understood immediately from studying kind of in that tradition, that you're thinking incredibly hard, you get really tired after an hour of it, but you're working with your brain and your body kind of fused into your hand and your eye.
2: Right. Now when you were a student in classes like this, my first question, it's very basic, would have been sort of what percentage of the students were men and what were women, and then beyond that, were the teachers treating you differently? It was 50-50. The teachers treated you the same in class,
3: in the sense that they come around and help you and encourage you. There was a very profound moment at the end of the at the final week of the class, I felt like I'd had a kind of revelation that this format was open to me. And so I asked the teacher, this is in 75, and I asked the teacher, can I be an artist? I had no idea. And he said, no, you'll be a waitress, so you should study illustration because commercial art will give you a way of making a living. And I said, well, I literally don't know where to go. And he said, well, you should go to SVA, because that's where they have commercial art. So I said, but I want to go to Cooper, where my best friend goes. And he said, "Mm, I, I think, you know, you better have a way to make a living. So I went to illustration school, basically. And after about like five minutes, I was like, you know, I, I just, sorry, but I got the bug, you know, I, I really want to be a painter. And then you had to decide, this is a different story. But just to say, at that moment, there was the critique of painting. And so you had this
2: moment in the mid to late 1970s, when painting was really called mid-70s. into 70s, even earlier. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So it was like, by the time I got to the table, the table was being shut down. And I was like, you know what? It took me so long to get here. I mean, not so long. I mean, I was in my early 20s, but I felt like, oh my God, I finally realized that I could try to be an artist.
2: And you were being told by structures in the art world I was that being painting told was by no men, longer... Right.
3: Not by women. but I was told by male authority figures that painting was dead. So my sense of the gender politics is actually quite clear that both my teacher in painting and my critical theory heroes were like, you
2: can't paint. So, of course, then you paint. The other component of a lot of, I suppose this is happens in the more recent work, in addition to questions about narrative and questions about color, is questions about time. A lot of your work, especially the ones that have been influenced by animation, which we can talk about a little bit, there often seems to be, you can read multiple gestures and multiple times within the final canvas. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about time in abstract painting.
3: Yeah, I'd love to, because I have thought about this a lot. Like I said, I started or I've always had a really deep connection to personally to different film and video makers. And it was from them that I understood about art more than in a way anyone. So I was always just aware that there was this time based, there was this distinction that was being made between quote unquote, time based work and quote unquote, not time based work,
2: I guess object based work and that it there there was painting and sculpture over here and then film performance video and never the twain shall meet maybe you'd have a collaboration where a painter could do the where you know Jasper Johns would do the costumes for Merce Cunningham or something but these were ultimately different enterprises exactly
3: and and they are inter different enterprises unless you're kind of this weird hybrid thinker and so I started to I just sort of naturally without really thinking about it I always made paintings where I would just make things and then change them, make things and then change them, and blah blah blah, on and on and on. But I would make super radical changes, not even, not little fussy ones, like I don't know what I'm doing. So the thing was just reworked completely for months, every single time. But I never had a camera, so I wasn't documenting that. And then, weirdly, it it changed for me with the iPhone, Mm. because when I Got a. I didn't have a tripod and a setup and lenses and you know lights and stuff. But when I got an iPad, uh, i uh, iPhone, I just started taking snapshots every day in my studio, and then I would just throw them into iMovie. In you know the cheap dumbass person who cannot do anything, and I would I would my I taught myself how to make little weird funky animations that showed the history of a painting. And actually, I was working on a survey show with Helen Molesworth years ago.
2: This was at the ICA in Boston.
3: Yes, it started there. And so we were friends and we worked together and she knew my work really well. And I showed her one of these and she seemed like completely gobsmacked, like she didn't know that that was what was under there. And I thought, oh my God, somebody who really even knows me really well and knows my work doesn't realize that this thing is stuffed with like a history. It's basically a performance for nobody, for me, or with no viewer in a way, because I'm sort of doing it, not looking at it.
2: Maybe I could ask you finally about the teaching that you do. You were on the road all the time, and one place you are in particular is in Frankfurt at the Städelschule. When you were a student, you were saying that although women were making up 50% of the class, the opportunities afforded to them uh, uh, quite explicitly were closed. I wonder, as a professor now, what you've seen change, not least at a moment when gender has become such a live wire in the art world. Are you seeing, both in painting and in the language of art more generally, do you see your students of both genders, of all genders, taking a different approach than you did when you were younger?
3: I mean, I, I note every day with dismay the same old shit. So, I mean, a lot hasn't changed. And things are also, gender-wise, there's a different way of dealing with stuff in Europe. I think like with teaching, it all depends who's there. Every institution with feminist-oriented people, for instance, offers a different model, a different sense of enterability, and also a different discourse, a different pedagogy, a different syllabus, literally, to other people. So when there are people present, who bring all of that to the table, we can encourage and attract and stimulate certain kinds of agency and, uh, and, and conversation. But then, from then, it sort of depends what they go out into. And it also depends who else is there, like to, you know, slap them back. You know what I mean? So you can feel like things are better, and then you can have one serious confrontation with someone who seriously does not want you to succeed. Like, you can meet a real misogynist every day of your life in America and Europe and realize that no fooling. There's an institutional structure that doesn't really want you to succeed, even though you may have like your life coach, you know, as your teacher. But I teach on purpose because of these things, because I, I feel like my experience showed me very intensely as a person that I had no role model. I had no idea how to do it. So for me, this is like not a way of getting, you know, a salary and checking out and going home. I understand that that's what it is for a lot of people, and I respect that. But I feel like my reason for being a teacher is very specifically to try to empower a conversation for people who are just coming up that is formal as well as demographic. I'm trying to allow and encourage people to take formal matters into their own hands and reconstruct an
2: aesthetic possibility. Amy Sillman, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thanks, Jason, for having me.
1: We are very excited to welcome Tim Griffin, Executive Director and Chief Curator of The Kitchen. Thank you, Tim, for joining us. Thank
4: you very much for having me.
1: And before we get going with the Even Eight, we were wondering if you could give our listeners a little bit of background on The Kitchen, its mission as one of the city's most important nonprofit spaces for performance.
4: Yeah, uh, The Kitchen was started in 1971. Uh, literally in a kitchen originally in a hotel on Mercer Street in 1973 it moved to another uh, location in Soho uh, looking back through the archives it's interesting to see that they were having a debate at that point about whether to leave Soho because it was too commercial <laughs> with <roughly laughs> the irony the irony Yeah, <laughs> but it started out devoted to uh, video uh, mostly there are a couple named the Veselkas but very quickly as they put it it opened up onto other disciplines mm. uh, particularly those who didn't really have a home so, before you knew it, uh, you had Philip Glass, uh, Steve Reich, you, the people I point to quickly are you know, Laurie Anderson, for example. Joan Jonas made a lot of early work there, and you know, just a, it becomes a remarkable history because you've got uh, in a single room people across disciplines working. So that Cindy Sherman has an exhibition there. Robert Longo, uh, Sherry Levine. Sarah Birnbaum, particularly a feminist video, takes on a real role there. We move to where we are today in 1986. At, at that point, it, it, the other thing I might put forward is that there's always been an interesting counterpoint with contemporary or pop culture. Mm-hmm. So, Talking Heads have one of their first. Yeah, I think they actually they have their first concert there. Beastie Boys in an early concert as well. Fab Five Freddy. I don't know this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, and this is the history of the Kitchen is a bit of a a secret yeah, history. Yeah. Uh, there, there are so many people who you know or whose influence you feel who have actually found their initial germination there or remain in dialogue. So that, for example, now we have a, a board where just this week, you know, two of them won Grammys. You know, James Murphy, Bryce Destner, Laura Anderson remains on the board. And I think you know, this has made the kitchen especially timely. Yeah, you know, lately, uh, One, because I think within larger institutions, over the course of the past 10, 15 years maybe, there was a little bit of an anxious position um, or an anxiety regarding how to position an organization and institution with respect to developments in larger culture. Mm-hmm. And the kitchen is able to wear those clothes a little bit more easily because it's built into the history and when it comes to an interest in interdisciplinarity here again you that history is built into it so that we continually work with artists you know across disciplines we have a gallery we have a theater we often allow individual artists to work across spheres where if you're a quote unquote visual artist which i didn't really use as a term until you know arriving at the kitchen you can use the protocols of the theater or vice versa mm-hmm. or set one you know, set of protocols of a space into another and you can really deal immediately with the syntax as an artist and that becomes part of our purpose today.
1: And you guys started off that you're pretty strong with the whole Julius Eastman performance series and the exhibition in the gallery space, I believe it's, there are yeah. both parts of that. And you have Kamei Aiewa's Upcoming performance, who is the winner of the Emerging Artist Award, The Kitchen? Yeah, our first. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted that award and what it will mean for the artists who win?
4: Sure. I mean, what was great about that process was you know, one, Laurie Anderson was involved from the outset, but the jury included artists with whom we had worked on numerous occasions over the past number of years, some 10 odd years, including uh, Simone Lee, uh, Ralph Lemon, uh, Kevin Beasley, uh, Marina Rosenfeld. And so a lot of the decision-making and the conversation around who should be awarded the privilege yeah. the deep privilege <laughs> of appearing at the kitchen <laughs> so if we can if we may pause on that
1: for a moment Let <laughs> um, that one sit for a minute
4: exactly let it sink in um you know, the conversation was really artist driven and it was actually driven by artists who had worked you know for quite some time and were you know, within and were are you know, part of the kitchen you know community so there are a slew of artists who came you know forward in in conversation and you know, Kame, uh Specifically, you know, really you know, emerged you know, because she does work across um, disciplines. Her politic um, is is fantastic and incredibly present, uh, you know, both along the lines of you know, you know, gender, race, sexuality, and she seemed the perfect artist for the for us at this moment. But also, uh, we hope you know, it seems like a really great moment for her uh, because she's already sort of exploding internationally Mm -hmm. but hasn't had the opportunity to have uh, a platform certainly in New York.
0: When you talk about working with emerging artists part of what your role then I imagine becomes has to do with facilitating production to some extent and as somebody as many of our listeners may know Tim prior to being the executive director of the Kitchen was the executive editor of Art Forum, which is a totally different side of things where you are on the critical side, sort of after the fact. But at The Kitchen, you're sort of beforehand part of this production. Is working with emerging artists partially interesting because of the challenges it presents in terms of getting people started in that way, in terms of giving people the facilities and the resources to sort of create in that capacity?
4: And it, it ends up being a combination uh, of things, I think, in that respect. Because I know that when I started there, I felt that it was important not only to work with emerging artists, but also somewhat more established artists. Yeah, partly because by virtue of drawing attention to the space in that way, you know, emerging artists would be better served. In, yeah, at some point, but I this think meant, I'm hand in hand. Yeah, this meant that yeah, I had the opportunity. We had the opportunity to work with, say, like Chantal Ackerman or Jan Vaux at a certain point, or you know, Bill Levitt or Joan, Jonas, uh, you're bringing these people back to the space if they hadn't been there for some time. But you, what we would always put forward is you know, if you're going to work here, it has to be for a reason it has to be specific to the space. And also you know, presses, your practice, you know, in some way, you know, out of your comfort zone, you know, maybe for lack of a you know, better phrasing. And then when it comes to emerging artists, I, I, like to think that you know we as a team, uh, because we have incredible you know, people, uh, Lumi Tan, Matthew Lyons, Katie Dammers, are able to because we're relatively versed in the infrastructures, you know, talk through ideas you know, with artists and offer a different sort of sense of the techniques and also what an audience response is, because you know in each of these spheres as an artist you're addressing a specific kind of viewer. And if you're transposing that, or if you're seeking to transpose that sort of positioning, um, you're know, having us there is helpful and it becomes interesting for us you know, too, you know, because you know, you're reconceiving an organization and a public.
0: You're also in a very privileged position in terms of the amount of performance that you're exposed to. And so definitely that, I mean, that has to integrate into part of your perspective. I would hope
4: so. <laughs> aren't aren't we all (laughs) performing
0: (laughs) um i have to ask um if there is anything given sort of the broad sphere of your knowledge on this if there's anything in performance happening right now that you think is underrated
4: i might mention sable elise smith at the queen's museum because she's a really interesting developing artist who probably is not she she has a lot of attention, but, you know, how many, you, you want to guide people out there so they can see it in the in the flesh.
0: Yeah, and encourage people to go visit the museum itself.
4: Yeah, sure. And then, you know, what I might, might also say, and this is a predicament of our times, maybe, you know, to switch the spectrum a little bit, is Carolee Schneemann. Great show, probably a lot of people going through, but not a lot of critical discussion, mm-hmm. ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that there are any number of other examples, but those were a couple that, came immediately to mind
1: and on the flip side is there anything you think that's overrated
4: no <laughs> oh <laughs> never. never
0: the first person to reject the question fully <laughs> i don't believe it was it. a matter of time <laughs> <laughs> it was a
4: matter of time i know thanks for the setup <laughs> <laughs> um i i wish there were a fuller and uh more prolonged conversation around the issues in the most recent Whitney biennial. Yeah. People are probably sick of that. And yet I don't know to what degree things truly got teased out or yeah, I'll look forward to seeing what sort of critical response there is around the Laura Owens show, because yeah, it's interesting to see a contemporary fantastic artist presented a painter presented at this moment when the dialogues around painting have like shifted so radically from the beginning of her career, to now, and so yeah, I guess that backdrop, you know, that question of overrated, underrated, there's the people that you meet when you're walking down the street and what the chit-chat is, but then you know, I, I, I really would like to know more about, I just like a deeper conversation, I guess.
0: Particularly given the fact that the at least as it pertains to the Whitney Biennial, the conversation was just completely dominated by one issue. To some extent, aside from Dana Schutz, everything else sort of fell to the background.
4: Yeah, and, and these these are really persistent you know, issues as well. you know, just like, what is a politic? You know, what are politics now? You are know, within the art field, um, you know, how should we rethink the terms of identity? And this is what everybody is. This is what many people are thinking about. Not everybody. How have those terms shifted since they were discussed at length in the '80s and early 90s you know, to what extent are we rehearsing your scenes from the past and to what extent you know is a new language you know, needed given a different cultural landscape
0: so if a need for a greater conversation about the politic is what is lacking is there anything exciting that's developed recently in new york that you would draw attention to
4: broadly like on the ideascape yeah, yeah. i i think that one of the things that i'm going to try to be succinct about this uh, and again it ends up just reflecting where my head is right now but I am very interested that there is you know a generation of artists who are no longer necessarily trying to crack the code of um, performance versus art gallery space versus theatrical space but are sort of weaving those terms and protocols I'll use the word again into their practices. I and mean, I think we saw for about 10, 15 years, a number of artists trying to think through and curators as well, you know, how do I put this performance in this white cube? Right. You know, In a different way than they did you know, some decades ago or maybe with a different sort of reflection You know, on it. And what happens is that you've got artists who situate audiences in more position than just one. You know, there's sort mm-hmm. of multiple registers in which people are encountering things. And this, I think, you know, offers an, a different mode of address, a different way of being in and of, you know, a different sort of mo- model of exchange you know, that in another registry you could you know, say is reflected in projects that have visual components, education components, performance components, and you know, really broaden out be- and become part of an institution. Yeah, you know, as opposed to being what in the '90s was called subversion for hire. Come and intervene in our space yeah. <laughs> but, with, but with
0: real medium specificity. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so
4: at, I, I'm at the risk of being very vague, um, or perhaps I have been very vague. But you know, I, I I am interested in how it seems like there's an increasing number of artists who are tackling you know, these questions, and you know, I, I think yeah, for me, it always yeah, comes back to, okay, what's the profile of art now? And, you know, culture seems relatively volatile, I think we can all say. <laughs> we can all agree on that. Yeah. And so why <laughs> no wouldn't impression. it be the same in art? You know, if, if the ground on which we walk, you know, culturally seems a little bit unstable, sure. We Crumbling should be, below us. You know, we, <laughs> we, should ex- we should expect the same to be happening, you know, in the institutions around us. Which again, to come back to the kitchen makes me excited because there's a quickness yeah, to it. it. It would be nice to have a little bit more support, shoring, shoring it up here and there, because yeah, we can, you know, we're on the ground. But you know, it it, it means that you, there's an immediacy as well.
0: Yeah, you guys are afforded a level of nimbleness, which yeah. is really wonderful in yeah. terms of getting a, the right register. Thank you. I think and so. And
1: returning to medium specificity, <laughs> is there a book you've read recently or a movie, film you've watched that's seemed particularly important?
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I know I, I've been playing a little bit of catch up, but you know, I was starting to reread Ta-Nehisi Coates. So I also took a look, we have a kitchen lab, which is language art bodies is a discussion series. I and mean, we went to a text by Edouard Glissant around opacity and you know, just you know, language problems. You're know, really in terms of how people from different spheres Speak or don't, or do both at once. You know, more specifically, but the things that have ended up being most interesting to me, maybe, or yet are hitting me, is uh, I started to read J.G. Ballard's uh, Miracle of Life, which, if I don't know if you've read it, this is memoir of his time growing up in Shanghai just before the Japanese and during the Japanese invasion, and you're living in an internment camp, and then finally, yeah heading back to you know, Britain and there's a transition in culture you know, and a real description of a physical world around him that no longer has the societal basis yet you know, to give it life and so the sci-fi ends up being actually no yeah this is just World War two <laughs> um, and well, he
0: loses all reference points
4: he loses all reference points as he's growing up and yeah you know, that I don't want to say felt timely uh, but, you know, it yeah, feels feels right to the moment. And I guess that backdrop, I end up feeling like I, I want to go back to Berlin Stories. You know, mm-hmm. Isherwood is kind of amazing. And then if I could see a movie that I saw way back in my youth, is Memories of Underdevelopment, which is at Film form right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, looks like, it sounds like I did my research. But... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's real, uh, that is true, you know, uh, when it comes it. to 1968, um, you know, after the Bay of Pigs, and here again, it's just what an individual life is in a swiftly shifting cultural you know, context, where the politics and the idiomatic vernacular all come together.
0: If you could be an expert on any subject, putting aside performance, and perhaps identity politics, what would it be?
4: You know, I... I would like to go back to music, I think.
0: Can you play an instrument?
4: Yes. Which one? A trumpet. So that was, was a different <laughs> was a different time. It's a different time. Um yeah, no, I yeah, that that was you know a real background yeah for me. Wow. And you know, I'm a little rusty on the uh, on on the you know compositional you know approach. Right. But, you know, yeah, grace to be born, live variously as possible. What was so, the last well, trumpet solo you composed? <laughs> no, I, I'm just I kidding. Mean, yeah, yeah. We did. There were. No, I worked across genres. There were different moments, at different times. Um, so maybe that, or you know, you know, I'd love to. Probably at this point, and this is just as as one becomes more mature, you're know, probably yoga or karate is probably the, uh-huh. the better.
0: Get a little zen.
4: Yeah, get a little zen. Get a little zen. <laughs> so yeah. I haven't thought about it that much. I don't know.
1: I like the idea of karate.
4: Yeah.
1: That's, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, I'll get where to Where do you take someone you're trying to impress?
4: I don't know. I listened to your previous-
1: mm.
4: you know, Episodes? Uh, some of your previous episodes. And by that measure, I thought, okay, yeah, like Sushi Yasuda, I, <laughs> you know, like, like I love it. But, and, and there may be a couple other places, but yeah, ultimately you get right down to it. Um, yeah, if it's not like a park at a particular time of day, I'm going to say um, the Hall of Biodiversity at uh, the Museum of Natural History. It's a good one,
1: very good one.
4: Did you grow? Let's face it. There's a whale. There's squid. There's, there's know, a lot to look at. So Lover much, of the deep
0: so sea, right much, here. <laughs> so much to look. At.
4: Yeah, no, exactly. For now, there's so much to look at, and there's know.
0: and it's great space.
4: It's an amazing. It's sp- a great space. Yeah, an the, amazing space. The architecture
0: yeah. of that room, in and of itself, is actually. It doing two thirds of the work in some ways.
4: Oh my God, no, it's it's crazy. Well, it's yeah, crazy. you have
1: to think about how you complement the whale, how you complement <laughs> the squid. No, I know,
4: and I've I've got a I've got a small kid, and you know, of course, you go in there, and you're kind of like, well, yeah, you know, it's a humbling environment by any measure, but yeah, you know, then the idea of like growing up. Among I was going to say, don't attribute like, that to age because it is still no, it's, to it's this absolutely day. <laughs> stunning. It would be, a, it's an impressive place.
0: Is your child impressed by it?
4: Oh, he's definitely impressed more more than he is <laughs> impressed by me. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> Where do you go in New York to be alone? Are you ever alone? We're with the always smile? alone. Oh, right, or the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> We're always
4: alone. I go to the whole biodiversity. Obviously, um, you
0: and ten thousand other school <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. children. <laughs> welcome,
4: welcome to the city. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I yeah, early morning Central Park.
1: There is really nothing like it. Yeah.
4: That's yeah. what I miss most about going, living on the Upper West Side. Going for a run. I know. It's a orc Naturally occurring retirement community. Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. But no, <laughs> yeah, just uh, you're going for a run in the park up there is like you know, it's phenomenal.
1: And is there anything on your radar for the rest of 2018
4: all right, I, I have my list. <laughs> do you have right. one thing? Do I have one thing? <laughs> do, do you have ten things? <laughs> I have ten things. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to be interested about in, in, in 2018.
2: There is.
4: I'm excited about Thomas Lax's Judson show at MoMA coming mm-hmm. up. I'm also excited to see you know, while there the Bruce Nauman you know, show that's coming up, and specifically in that regard, to point to Ralph Lemon. Um, he has this amazing sort of you know, conversation around how Nauman's performance work and video work yeah, coincided with civil rights marches and how that exploration of space in the aesthetic realm had its match in um, you know, society more generally. And so like meshing that would be cool. Um, and then I'm gonna say Nils Fromm, the Knockdown Center, who's an amazing German composer and you know working no i mean come on I, it's great I, yeah I, i've thought i've this is someone who definitely i've tried to you bring to the kitchen um hasn't happened perhaps it won't but knockdown's amazing and so i'm thrilled to to get out there
0: and is, see that is there one thing coming up in the kitchen's 2018 programming that you can highlight for our listeners
4: the other thing i'm going to say about another organization zoe yeah. leonard i'm so excited oh, yeah. that's going to be an Absolutely. amazing show yeah at the kitchen coming up i mean Julie eastman this week is phenomenal yeah still uh yeah i'm thrilled about that Kameya Yewa, more mother similarly going to be amazing I'm working with abraham uh, Cruz Villegas at the start of april who is going to do performances and exhibition he hasn't done that in new york year before and then Later, um, Charlie Atlas is coming back you cool to the kitchen with his title, The Kitchen Follies. Uh, <laughs> and I believe Lady Bunny is going to be uh, hosting and you know, there'll be a cast of thousands exhibition, performance, video you throughout and you know, having him take over the space in that way is going to be uh, pretty brilliant.
0: Can't wait to see his follies yes.
4: Yeah, no, it's going to be great.
0: What a great title
4: yeah I know right It's always kind of like that but yeah no it's it, it's it's a great title. it's it's gonna be a great um, great month with him there.
0: Well thank you so much Tim for joining us and we will uh, make sure to watch out for Charles Atlas. All right.
4: thank you.
1: Again, we want to thank Amy Silman and Tim Griffin for coming on the show this week. And we encourage all of you this holiday weekend to go see Peter Hujar, Speed of Life, at the Morgan Library, along with Amy Silman's exhibition at Gladstone Gallery. And last but not least, go check out some of the upcoming programming at the Kitchen. I'm Rebecca Siegel. And I'm Abby Sandler. And this is Hidden Noise.